Welcome back to Gathering, episode seven. Um, this time around, we are in studio with Max Chen from Sonder. Sonder is a very interesting company, and uh, and Max is a very interesting guy. So beyond just the company that you belong to, I think from what we were just talking about uh, off camera, uh, there's a lot to your personal life um, and career history in different countries that will play into this conversation. And I'm really excited about that because we uh, we have an audience that is, you know, obviously um, in this whole people and culture world dealing with all sorts of uh, aspects of, of kind of rapidly globalizing companies, companies that are distributed around the world. Now everyone seems to be hiring the best talent wherever they are uh, now that we don't need to go to the office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so lots to talk about. But let's kick it off, Max, with a little bit of an introduction. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. This is great. This is actually really exciting. Nice. So yeah, my name is Max and um, I work for Sonder now. I've worked for other companies before like Expedia. And before that, I was in uh, real estate feasibility. In terms of where I've worked, I started, um, I started studying hospitality in Switzerland. Um, before that, I was living in South Africa. And then I started my career in Dubai. So I've done, you know, Africa, a little bit of Europe, and then went to the Middle East. From there, I went back to South Africa for a little bit with Expedia. And now I'm here in Canada, looking after North America, basically with Sonder. Wait, so how long has it been that you've been like in Toronto? Uh, two years. Two years? Okay. Two years. I, I barely feel like a Torontonian. Did you choose to live in Toronto or was that the condition of the job with Sonder at the time? No, I, I joined Sonder when I was in Montreal, like mid-pandemic. Ah. I, I got to know the Sonder uh, tech guys uh, by playing board games with them in a WeWork. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was jobless at the time. I had a job that I thought was lined up with Expedia. It fell through during the pandemic uh, with my work permit and everything. And, um, you know just to kind of talk about the power of co-working space. My wife worked for WeWork at the time, so I was hanging out in the area. I was, you know, doing some certificates to upskill myself, which I think is a whole, you know, something we could talk about, like a whole sub-industry of selling you certificates, like it's going to guarantee you a job in some way. Yeah, the whole LinkedIn learning and everything like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that, but what did come out of it wasn't necessarily the job from the certificates. It was the relationships that I've made, you know, playing board games, getting to know the guys, and then when the company started hiring again, yeah. I think it was a lot of personality, but, you know, learning, hey, you actually come from Xperia, you're an industry that's re very much related. Mm. I started working with Sonda there. My wife got moved to Toronto for her job. And I moved At WeWork. Over. Correct. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. So Toronto wasn't something I expected. Yeah. I thought I was going to be in Montreal for a while. It's a groovy city, right? It's cool. I love Montreal. That's where yeah. I went to university. Yeah. Oh, really? So I was there from like 98 to 2003 almost. Like after I graduated from McGill, I, I was unemployable. Because um, <laughs> I, I was in business. Like I started as a BCom, oh. and then I quickly got out of that because it just felt too much like... You know, I, I moved to Kenya when, in 92, right? So as a Canadian, I escaped going to Canadian high school. Right. So when I was in, in business at McGill, it felt very much like I somehow was back a few steps and in high school, everyone in a BCom, in the BCom program at McGill were these like keener Canadian, uh, maybe also because like the aesthetics of the building, like the Bronfman building at McGill was, was like a cinder block building with tube lights and... I don't know, it wasn't my vibe. And so very quickly, I just stopped going to the mandatory classes. <laughs> Got a few calls over the years from like, you know, the administrators saying like, you're the only student that seems to like, 
we don't even know how you're still in the program. And I'm like, I can't transfer out. I've been trying for two years. Honestly, you know, I've been in the Middle East, so that's the extreme weather. And people make fun of me, you know, saying you went from the desert to one of the coldest places on earth. And just, you know, the the subject of weather is always a bit of a bore, but you can die in this weather. You can die. Serious. So as a student, I can't imagine like the yeah. lack of motivation if this is how it felt and it, it, but it wasn't even like a lack of motivation for me because actually i was the way i looked at it i went to montreal i didn't go to mcgill mm. you know mm. and um so even the stuff that i i ended up learning and, and getting degrees in at mcgill uh it was all stuff that i couldn't learn otherwise right. that's why i decided really quick i was like a bcom is a stupid degree you know and i still believe this um it's a dumb degree because you can learn it in a book. Like it's all textbook stuff. So why would I spend four years of my life when mm-hmm. I'm becoming an adult, you know, doing things that like I could have done when, when I was a teenager? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's my, that was my logic. And so I actually did a degree in, uh, in religious studies, comparative religion, looking at Hinduism wow. and Buddhism. And, uh, and then I also did an independent study, uh, kind of analyzing the urban context that led to the evolution of electronic music in North America. Wow. Yeah, just random <laughs> what shit. What a journey. Yeah, because yeah. it, it was interesting. I was going to ask you more about like what made you go to Kenya? Like what was what was the inception of the idea kind of? Yeah, it's Nairobi. a great question. Like not many people even ask that when I tell them um, that we moved there when I was 11. Like what, what it was was my parents, you know, uh, were from Kenya. Right, so we're like one, two, three, maybe four generation Kenyan. Oh, so their parents, parents, parents moved from India. Wow. Yeah, and uh, so they had a claim to being Kenyan, you know. And mm. um, I think what happened was with either you know Idi Amin kind of wrecking uh, Uganda in the early seventies uh, and expelling all Asians, East Asians, South Asians, every kind of Asian he could mm. lay his hands on from the region the country um a lot of people got spooked in the region and so east african uh indians essentially started looking elsewhere for for where they can live and my parents were part of that they, they lived in kenya so it was relatively stable economy and everything it was being built at the time and uh they just you know kept hearing from their relatives like hey this might not be that good where yeah. else could you go yeah and then they uh they came here canada yeah. yeah, yeah. And Montreal, no less. Like, oh, sorry, Toronto, was, then you went to Montreal. Well, my parents moved to, where did they go? They went to Vancouver for a bit. That's where they landed. Then they went to Edmonton. They went to Calgary, back to Edmonton, then to Calgary. And that's where I was kind of in the mix. My brother was born in Calgary. I was born in Edmonton. Um, and so we grew up there in Alberta for the first, like, 10, 11 years of my life. So I moved from Calgary to Nairobi. And wow. then from Nairobi is when I moved to Montreal to go to university but yeah, like after McGill, man, um, I stayed in the city because the city made sense to me. You know, it's right. it's like um, it's a furtive environment for cultural experiences. Right. Yeah. Which is what a cool international city should be. Yeah. So, yeah. Hundred percent. So that's where. So that's where you moved. That was your first uh, Canadian city that you lived in. Yeah. Yeah. My wife was already there at the time. I actually got married in Montreal. Um, you she, met her in Montreal? No, or? no, got married. We studied together. Oh, actually. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. So I, it sounds like a bit of a you know uh, college romance thing. It really wasn't. <laughs> um, our relationship started at the end, and then we went f- together to Dubai, and we you know worked there. Um, 
I actually had a really good life, but I ultimately, for my career, I wanted to go back from real estate into e-commerce. Okay. And so I joined Expedia, and they needed someone in Africa. So I went back home, one could say, to yeah. South Africa, and I looked after like Africa, uh, Indian Ocean, and Israel. Interesting. Same, like they, they considered one region, but they very much right. can you know handle their own stuff. Uh, and from South Africa. A lot of the you can imagine the headquarter functions and the big jobs with you know Expedia are yeah. in North America. So when she when she had moved to Montreal first, I always knew I was going to join her, and it was I was just waiting for the right opportunity, you know, to to get over. In the end, it didn't it didn't work out that way. Yeah, in the you end, were just like playing checkers and yeah, I was like you know you have to get the job first, but then that, and then I was just like when the job fell through, I was like no, that's it, I'm moving, I'm gonna try a new country. I've moved enough in my life, I think I I'm pretty confident I can make it work. So yeah, Canada well to move to like minus forty, you know Montreal. Also, I had a little bit of French. You gotta have balls, you know. Yeah, but I had yeah. You can know French, but you need balls. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you gotta find them in that weather as well. Oh my god, man. <laughs> But yeah, no, it it's been a great move. Um, it's it's a great place. It ha- comes with its challenges, and, right? You know, and I, I think COVID anywhere is not the normal place. Yeah, and for our audience outside of Canada, I mean, like the lockdowns that we had in uh, in in Quebec and Ontario were like some of the most strict in the world. Very much right? so. Yeah. So it was kind of a crazy experience to like land here, and then what you guys even had uh, a curfew. In Montreal, no? Yeah, yeah, we did. So you um, couldn't go out at night or something? It's funny, I don't remember that very well. Yeah, I, you just I, wiped out of your yeah, brain. Yeah, yeah, it was just, oh, okay, in the beginning it was nice, you know, I think maybe still the honeymoon phase of, you know, being married, and then it was actually Toronto that really got me. Yeah. Moving to a new city, we already had a group of friends, and, you know, it lines up pretty well with kind of what your podcast is about. The work environment, the, I really had a critical look at, you know, my, my job because mm-hmm. you know, I said, hey, I'm used to working in new places. My previous role was very much sales orientated. So it allowed me to meet a lot of people. When I moved to a new city, a new country, I would fly and travel a lot to to see new faces, learn new things. It, you know, I felt like a big part of that was lacking. Mm-hmm. Didn't have an office to go to. So, yeah, I have great colleagues. I have met some very smart people because of what Sonder is a startup environment we hired some very very sharp in- individuals but mm-hmm. they're just on a screen you know it's it's hard to really um once you get the feeling of accomplishment of like a project is done or you met certain milestones yeah it's not the same when you're trying to you know grab a beer by yourself Everyone takes a laptop to the pub happy hour you know and I have friend on a friday and i'm i'm pretty much going off i'm done drinking with you guys oh man i'm gonna go drink with my wife so when, uh, yeah, in, in uh, 20, when was this? Actually, it wasn't even 2020. 2021, I incubated a couple of ventures, new ventures at Startwell here. I, I launched a couple of companies betting on two things that were uh, going to, no matter how long this crazy pandemic was looking to last, I was like, I want to I want to kind of like, I had this great hypothesis, which is, can I seed the evolution of new companies that could be my tenants, you know, coming out of this, right? So then I don't need to go look for tenants at Startwell and right. our, you know, we could co-work our own companies. And it was it was a great idea, but it was all bootstrapped, which meant that it was you know ultimately short-lived. But one of them was called Shakerton. And Shakerton is a great brand, shakerton.com. Um, I started building a catalog, a VOD catalog, uh, like video on demand, of instructional videos for Mixology. 
And wow. then, yeah, and then we used those uh, with a live instructor oh. to do like mixology classes for corporations. And the ultimate goal was that we would take this catalog and we'd shop it to uh, hotel chains to be training resources for distributed staff so that, you know, the, the, the bartenders could become mixologists. Mm-hmm. We would offer a certification and we'd evolve a whole, you know, training program. Um, but yeah, we did tons of business and we got great clients like Air Miles and RGA and all of these like big companies were using Shakerton for animating their their weekly, the end to the week for everyone at home. And what we do is my instructor would uh, teach a couple recipes for like 30 to 50 to 200 coworkers, like all sorts of different sizes, uh, live on a live stream. We'd have some like virtual event platform and everyone for that would be shipped out a, a cocktail kit to their house. So they're all like mixing. And it was so sad to me to see this happen, actually, because everyone, when they were like, I was, you know, when we were in studio, we're like in one of our bar spaces on campus. And it was like, we're in a bar. Yeah. I assumed everyone would take their laptop into their kitchen for this or something. But I didn't think it through, man. When you see the tiles on the screen of all the different heads and everyone's at their desk. Oh. And then it's cringy because like the the team leads are like, hey, Jim, I see you over there. I hope you're ready to put your pen down or something, you know, and like, and it's like, no, it just doesn't translate this whole like come to the common room thing. And then everyone's at their desk, like in their living room. Maybe they've got like a dog on their lap or they're like little kids like Papa. And he's like, not yeah. now I'm working while he's like mixing cocktails. <laughs> it's depressing. You definitely need oh. that group like alcoholism to kick in and yeah. for that environment. Oh right? my God. I, you know, it's funny you say that because Expedia is a, was a great place, you know, for that kind of party vibe and everything yeah. and it built I think a we even did a session or two for Expedia but they 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 started cutting back on encouraging drinking you know they 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 made some new rules about um, only x amount of drinks and I think one of the rules that really stuck out to me was in their corporate events uh, no manager or no employee may pour another employee a drink I don't quote me verbatim on that but it was like a rule like that so over an x number of people attending they had to get a professional bartender huh. and only that bartender may serve drinks. But maybe that was like, you know, a rule cooked up to uh, eliminate classism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And that that get, that philosophically can get very, yeah, very touchy. Like, Tonight, I'm not your boss, Jim. I'm just your friend. Let's ask Fred over there, the hired bartender, to pour us 50 drinks. I think everyone just got too scarred by that one colleague who would just always pour way too much drink, uh, alcohol and, and then just like a splash. You know, you've seen those jokes where they use a, the spray bottle to spray on the orange or something like that. Maybe it's from that. That's but really funny. I think it's a lot of people who, I think they had a lot of cases where people got way too drunk, right? Yeah, and it's an interesting point. I mean, like, I think on one hand, you've got this, like, how do you animate your virtual team? and kind of like give them experiences that are shared. And then on the other hand, it's kind of like those experiences now, and again, this is the one of the big hot topics for everyone, right? It's talking about wellness, wellness, wellness. Exactly. So you want to animate your team's experiences um, as much as you can and make them fun, but they should also be kind of like fulfilling as experiences and have a lasting effect that's positive. A lot of people we're talking to are having like a little bit of difficulty figuring out what that is, you know? Yeah. Because a little stipend here and there. I think in the beginning, playing virtual games online, mm. like... Um, Minecraft? No, oh. no, much more simpler than that. Oh, okay. What's the uh, 
Beyond Us, the little figurines where you're on a spaceship. I, I don't even know. Name. Yeah. yeah. So that was pretty popular in, in our every Friday, you know, everybody gets a stipend to buy a six pack of beers or a burger. Yeah. Falls off pretty quickly after a while. You know, people, the only can, you can only play Hangman so many times and scrap, you know, all those. Oh, it's so true. Like, yeah, one of our member companies is a company called, um, that we work with is called Venue. And Venue was started by one of the co-founders of TechTO, which is the largest, um, let's call it, subscriber base of, of, you know, innovators and startups in, in the country, really. Mm. And um, we talked about their solution. It's kind of cool because they're really big on, like, engagement tools and live streaming. So they're like, instead of group activities online and having people go off into their own virtual rooms to, like, play these Hangman games, um, they're really focused on... Let's all talk to each other, you know, uh, and what that content in is, sorry, what the content is, is up to whoever's using the software, but the software allows you all these positive feedback things. So you can like vote up what people say and oh. you can kind of like do all this kind of stuff to like make it more fun, supposedly to video conference essentially. Isn't that what some people think is toxic about social media, which is like trying to say the right thing and get yeah, people to think That's a good point. Huh, you know? It's a good point. Can you thumbs down what people say? There you go. Oh, Jim, <laughs> just just turn off your mic, Jim. You're not funny. And I'm, fine, I'm glad I can finally tell you outside of a meeting. Yeah. I choose to ignore you, Jim. Write me up with HR. <laughs> I'll tell you more when I go on the offsite, which is what I think is the best. I think getting off-site. people in a room together for the brainstorm, um, it it does wonders. I've done two recently with two different departments, you know, in Sonder mm-hmm. and the relationships that get built and the kind of the 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 leaps in conf- in confidence, you know, within the team that gets built yeah. during those short three days is you can't substitute it. Where are you planning them? Like, what? Where have you held them? We did one in San Fran, oh, and nice. we did uh, the recent one in Phoenix. And Oops. for so both of those are cities, but were they like? Oh, mm. like a kind of a relaxing scene or was it more like, what was, it, what was the venue? First one was a WeWork. Okay. So we went around the WeWorks. Um, and it's very much, you know, during the day meeting room in a WeWork, like a big boardroom. And uh, the San Francisco one was in the Salesforce Tower. So uh-huh. it was more, I think it was impressing the team about the great view as well. You feel very nice and important. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, at, in the evening, really where the relationships are built are at, you know, over the dinner table. Right. So a lot of those kind of ad hoc brainstorm sessions. And then for Phoenix, it was much more casual. We have a building where we have all the units on a floor because we're in the accommodation business for those who don't know Sonder. And as part of that whole residential building, there is a recreational space, a big, very nicely decorated with pool table, table tennis, big TV for watching games and a bar. We did a whole offsite there. No meeting rooms, nothing. Couches and just throwing ideas out there. You know, having people who will invigilate the, the conversation, yeah. lead it. But between the two, yeah, one was maybe a little bit more productive if you looked at like written output. Uh-huh. But the second one was a little better because that was a multi-team offsite as well. So if I think about what that offsite achieved in a casual environment, that was that was the best. And, this is what we're hearing, right? And and start well. Okay, so let's let's. I'll give you. Yeah, we'll do a little show and tell here. I mean, we already are, but uh, because start well, like started right in 2017, as we were saying before, um, 
you know, off camera, uh, Startwell, I founded Startwell as a co-working space. And the idea was I had just spent some time um, surveying the Canadian innovation landscape uh, for work and for kind of pleasure. I helped a bunch of like family offices place money in early stage ventures. Mm. Uh, and that was at the same time. And then after, you know, spending a year really at uh, SoftLayer running their um, startup program for Canada. Mm-hmm. And that was a cloud infrastructure company that was bought by IBM. So through the M&A, I went over to IBM and ran essentially IBM startup program across Canada, fledgling as it was, uh, under-resourced as it was, under-intended as it was. And uh, there's a lot of lessons from like, you know, seeing this whole like corporate machine trying to like trip over its feet to be relevant uh, that I have to share. But um, under-intended is a interesting yeah. word. I'd love to hear more about that later. Yeah, like here's the thing, right? This is 2000 and what year was that? 2014, 15, um, that I was with SoftLayer and then IBM. The thing that I found was IBM for so long at that point had been growing through acquisition, staying relevant through acquisition. I don't mean like... There are great research teams all over the world, right? Great innovation teams that are in back offices kind of like tinkering on technological innovation, mm-hmm. product testing and wonderful stuff. Even their design group, like in Toronto, there was an office that was an interface design company. I don't know why they have one, IBM, to compete with you know all these other agile firms for corporate clients to like design products. But they have one and they, and they were great people there. And so what I was trying to do with the startup program is say, Okay, let me reach into all these amazing pockets of talent at IBM and pull out, if nothing else, hours for consulting that we can donate to early stage ventures mm. and just do office hours, if nothing else. So they can kind of get um, a look behind the scenes at how a big corporation works, but also as a corporate partner, explore how their solutions could benefit IBM um, by getting actual feedback from IBM employees. And then, of course, any other insights from from the knowledge pool. So very simple, like most companies do this kind of stuff for their startup programs, not really a kind of game changer. Yeah. But the fear that I faced in the organization, some of it was very stupid. Like some of it was very banal, where you had team leads being like writing me angry emails. I don't know who you report to. I can't see you in the in the whatever their org chart kind of software is. And, and I'm just wondering why you're reaching out to my guys and who's going to pay for their time. Uh-huh. I was like, really? Like, are you managing, micromanaging your team so that they have to clock in and clock out every like hour on each project? Otherwise, you can't pay them. Uh, hmm. I. But that's the way they were set up. And so people were, were out for my hide from day one when I was at IBM <laughs> because I was challenging the status quo of how they worked internally. And classically, IBM's multiple teams, you know, didn't really talk to each other. So IBM, you know, let's say some whatever product, you know, gets evolved mm-hmm. and brought to market, it might not be designed by IBM's like interface design team. Mm. IBM is like many, many companies yeah. in a sense. And of course, they've been surviving on on buying innovation for so long where they're acquiring companies to buy markets a lot of the time. So. Mm in tech, they, they buy companies like crazy, but most of them are either acquires or really to just kill competition. So this is what happened with SoftLayer. SoftLayer was a kick-ass 
a cloud infrastructure company. One of the few cloud infrastructure companies that was built to scale, and that was literally their tagline, built to scale. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's like burnt into my brain. Um, but such a cool company because down to even the wires and the, the, the placement of the wires in the server stacks, everything was designed. Um, like, which yeah. sounds like it makes sense now that we know like Amazon and Google and all these crazy server, you know, technologies that they've deployed and created to uh, keep costs down, but also to, you know, scale across the world. Yeah, the hosting co- fun- capabilities, crazy, yeah. So software was one of the first. Software used to be called uh, the planet. So some people, old school, you know, tech geeks know the planet. I had come across it years and years ago because uh, for my radio station, that was streaming online for my record label called Indian Electronica. I had done some procurement years and years ago, looking like we're talking 2003, Mm. looking for a streaming service or otherwise a server, virtual server, that didn't have bandwidth caps. This Mm. is just like a little interesting thing. You couldn't find one anywhere. Like someone that had global relevance, fast kind of connectivity to their data centers that would give you enough kind of dedicated resources on a shared server mm. that your stream would never like, you know, under buffer or go down. And the planet had unlimited bandwidth. So it was really big with like streamers uh, right. early on. And it, and it was a big host for, for hackers and all sorts of people doing crazy stuff. Um, and they were Texas based. So they had that kind of like cultural flair to say, yeah, whatever. Like they were, they're really cavalier in a way. Yeah. Austin, um, Austin Texas? Uh, Dallas, Dallas. Dallas thing. Yeah, yeah. Based in Dallas. Uh, and then what happened with software was, so their they're kind of like architecture was so tight that it was their API. They had a, they were the first cloud infrastructure company, I think, that I came across that had an API. Um, this is before Rackspace announced their API. But their API had like 1,400 uh, calls on it when they released it. Like it was so overdeveloped, but it was powerful where you could do an API call to provision uh, hard, like bare metal servers. So I could deploy a brand new server in a, remotely using API calls mm. where a robot would literally put like machinery together and, and kind of build out a server. Oh. So really, really deep tech in, yeah. in ev- evolving how uh, cloud servers really come together and work. Um, interesting company because of that. But what happened was there was infighting with the owners and essentially what happened is they kind of reached a market cap in uh, North America. And from what I remember, their kind of like annual revenue was like 450 million bucks or something. Um, and they couldn't grow because of competition. Amazon at the time was just coming up in cloud hosting. Like it was it was really a new competitor, you know. Um, and software didn't want to buy competitors to gain market share. Mm. Um, and so they had to look globally. And they started opening a few data centers here and there. They opened, I think at the time, one in Toronto and, and a couple others. And the problem was um, that the founders didn't, they're Texans. They drive around with like handguns in their glove compartments. Like no joke, I've seen this. Um, they didn't want to go to like Dubai and open a data center. They didn't want to get into Africa, but they the business needed to, to stay relevant. So essentially that company went on the chopping block. Huh. Meanwhile... IBM was up for tender on a couple of Pentagon contracts and, and, you know, Department of Forestry and stuff contracts. 
scales is just crazy. But what's crazy is that IBM didn't even have a cloud infrastructure to even bid on that tender. So they were looking, they were shopping all over the world for a cloud vendor because IBM in its you know infinite lack of wisdom was selling as a cloud solution. They would sell on-prem multi-location. So they were selling this thing that they would call like private cloud where they'd go into like General Mills and like at all of their factories or whatever, put in like some clunky, massive server rack infrastructure and then try and get like dark fiber or whatever connectivity point to point and network them and call that like a cloud. What? It's kind of like how shitty SaaS companies will, you know, say that they're cloud-based and they're they're SaaS by having virtual server instances with a full software stack installed on top of it. And every time a new customer signs up through the front end, it provisions a version of that software. This is like old school, like fake it till you make it tech that's like bound to break. The accounting on that must have been hilarious. You oh, yeah. All these different locations and... Like, well, they would because they were an on-prem business. Like their their server, that that's the history of the company, right? Is like all this clunky on-prem stuff, and so they would sell like a server for two million bucks or something. And so if they could sell a cloud contract to a, a corporate client, that cloud contract is the opposite of what the cloud actually gives the client in the real world, mm. which is scale at affordable cost. Mm. They would instead have like a twenty million dollar contract to do a private cloud. So anyway, what happened was they essentially bought software for like a 2x ARR, like really got it cheap. And because uh, cause all the founders at this point were tired of each other or whatever, the owners. Mm. And uh, and they bought this company and then they started uh, skinning it, you know. And, uh, and it's interesting because that one sale paid for the whole company. And then they, because it was built to scale... It became IBM's, you know, secret weapon for for cloud. Now they had a cloud they could deploy all over the world, and mm, so they grew it. Interesting. Anyway, I don't know why I brought that up. Oh, we were talking about this whole. Well, I, maybe it was, it was about acquisitions and like the follow through on it. I, I thought it was going to go to somewhere where it was about integrating the team in as well. Um, Expedia is a company that grew oh, by acquisition. Oh, okay, tell me. Well, yeah, I'll just I'll close this yeah. loop. I think what it was was. Um, I was talking about yeah being at IBM uh, as a precursor to start huh? yeah un- to start well? underintended underintended oh right oh I don't know there's a lot to just you know I I don't want to just like throw shit around but like yeah basically I found when so I actually you know was working for Software because of the company that it was and then joined you know not begrudgingly like up opportunistically joined IBM through the M&A thinking, great, now there's a lot more, you know, leverage to create awesome. And I found at every turn that essentially IBM had no intent whatsoever to engage with what it saw was a threat to its sales. Hmm. IBM collectively, culturally saw, like the blue blazer culture, saw startups as cannibalistic to sales opportunities. To the point where uh, my program rostered um, startups to give them free cloud credits. Mm-hmm. I would have cloud salespeople, again, who were selling on-prem crap. Like, they didn't understand the cloud credits that we gave them. They would start 
data mining for through some backend whatever contact or otherwise ask me for the contacts for my customers and start calling these startups and saying and selling them multi-million dollar contracts and the startups will call me and be like we don't have this money what's happening they're like no they're so they got very confused about like what a freemium is and Mm -hmm. you know what the upgrade path is Mm -hmm. funnily enough um, one of the companies that was on our roster was a Toronto company uh, whose brand is now so famous. They were a kind of a, they were using like AI for um, really for like deep science research stuff. And they had a brilliant name that Facebook wanted to acquire. <laughs> and they were called Meta. No way. So I knew the guys at Meta and it was an actual company and i actually like gave them an extra million dollars of cloud credits or something to keep them alive they were going to like they were basically wow. their servers were too expensive and they hadn't raised enough money yet and we kept them alive and then the one of the consequences of that down the road was that they sold their brand and their company to facebook oh so that's just one example one anecdote of the success of this program but ibm didn't have that foresight you know Imagine, imagine guys hold on to that. Yeah. Like, well, took it in a little bit, you know, closer to you. Right. To itself and, you know. But you would need that, you would need that atmosphere of innovation, right? You would want to dabble exactly. in that space if you, if you really want it to become what it is now. Like oh, yeah. This metaverse idea. Like where IBM, you know, historically has bought companies to kill them to try and be the biggest dog in the market and sell a shitty solution to you know, an unawaring, unaware, you know, customer. Um, yeah, I, I think they could have flipped the script instead. Again, it would be a different company. But like, you know, look for innovation everywhere that it exists and be the platform to support it. But then again, I mean, then they would be like Google, right? Yeah. Very different companies. Very different. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, you have that, you know, in, in our side, like the travel industry, you have, I was going to say Expedia is a company that, grew through acquisition and the follow-through on integration of integration wasn't always ideal you know the MA guys kind of sign a deal and then next thing you realize when you really get down to the weeds into the weeds your databases don't don't sync right so it's not exactly a perfect example I, I i wasn't part of it so i can't speak too much to like the, the nitty-gritty details but they acquired a company called homeaware and verbo which everybody knows and VRBO? Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah, so we call it Verbo. Um, and it was their foray into um, vacation rentals, right? Everyone's like, whoa, like yeah. Expedia's in. One acquisition. Couldn't get the inventory. Like, couldn't get it to connect. And meanwhile, if you look so, at... So you mean the VRBO listings couldn't get pushed onto Expedia.com or .ca? Lo- a lot of du- duplicate listings, you know, didn't... We didn't... Nobody was really communicating it, maybe? The, you know how the integration was going to work mm-hmm. and if you look at how the structure of the company works is we um at the time expedia you um you have the people who go and acquire the listing so if you were a vacation rental or your hotel you know you would have to agree to come onto our website but we're just a marketplace right so when right. they went and got this vacation rental you know supply to come on it was supposed to complement the existing hotel supply yeah uh, whereas booking.com did it all organically they were hiring teams 
going mom and pop, like door to door mom and pop signing everybody right. like signing your apartment hi bed bed and breakfast yeah yeah look yeah. we got this cool app we got this website unibooking.com great yeah come on you know and then on one marketplace you had everything like the the marriott down to kasim's bedroom right yeah. in theory right yeah. um but yeah expedia went and did these kind of acquisitions where the integration didn't work out and it was a really good example of not only did the tech not work out but then you had this whole team that was sitting there and they were an innovative team or they when they acquired hotwire which is a last minute booking right. uh, platform i remember using that yeah. yeah they were known to be the fun team they had go-kart races in the office and things like that and when you get down to okay maybe the business revenue starts coming in you know and, and we you know you can pipe you can share inventory but over time if you're the people working in that company you kind of looked at it and said my job is about to disappear or my fun time is going to go it's going to mm-hmm. go and that in, and it stifles innovation in a lot of places or at least the people who have the choice are usually the most mobile they drop off like flies if they don't become like a senior leader or something like that and i think that now you see a lot of the startups you know starting to do that like posturing up to get acquired and things like that you 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 have that problem of the churn right of of talent yeah churn is a big one and actually it's something that's been recurring in in this series so far is talking about especially precipitated by the last couple of years maybe it's a some people have told us that it might be a generational thing it might be a kind of a culture of work thing inherited by people um coming out of at least in Canada the work study programs where you're spending a short amount of time as you know the end of your engineering degree or something at a company for 6 months and then going to another one um and that just becomes the culture where like people are looking for new experiences new projects to tackle especially mm. engineers that are you know very high grade or or very solutions oriented they want to tackle you know climb the mountain and then mm. go on to the next mountain so mm. they're looking for challenges and that's what a job is at a company and so they don't mind if they have 50 companies that you know when they're 50 years old to look back on that form their career their CV yeah what well, but, but i it, feel like we did, sorry yeah no no go but for it i feel like sometimes we maybe look at it as age is one thing but nobody has you don't hear it very often where they talk about you have these companies that service and want to install this mobility yeah. in the workforce like yeah. linkedin and things like that it's a lot less painful to do so and it's romanticized to have a global globalized world oh yeah so like if you were to say yeah it could be age but isn't it a function of the fact that with the rise of startups and the internet they wanted to make it easy to move because we talk about how valuable talent is if he's been at three companies startups right. want in, like institutional uh, people who've worked in large institutions yeah that's a whole fucked up thing to me like this idea of kind of you know oh why is it a badge of honor to say you're like ex facebook well maybe you sucked <laughs> maybe facebook itself sucks you know like maybe your team never did anything at facebook but somehow it's like desirable but you could, you could turn it around too right yeah. like you worked at a startup great it basically means you'd work the weirdest hours you never had to do time management exactly. because you're working 9 to 9 every day well this is the thing is that like you know it's interesting right we're talking to a lot of hr people that are either internal or external recruiters or or talent you know acquisition folks as part of the series and and i think what they're 
they're the strongest kind of theme in how they find good people is really um, network and network effects, not so much like resumes. Mm-hmm. But that's also another whole topic that's a socio-analytical one is to look at kind of the uh, increasing relevance of LinkedIn in the last few years as a social network as opposed to as a place to like create a CV without typing it up. Yeah. And there's a kind of a, a social behavior emerging that's like on that network where people are like, yes, posting jobs, yes, answering job listings, applying for jobs, but also kind of using their profile uh, as more than a resume, right? And okay. and the LinkedIn profile. I mean, this is the interesting thing. We've kind of assumed this, right? So also I, I have a little tin hat thing to say about this, which is kind of cool. You know, I don't know if you remember this, right? Not many people kind of actually that I've talked to remember this moment, but sometime, I believe it was in 2020, like towards the end of the year, Facebook pushed a, a UI update for their web uh, interface. Okay. The look of Facebook changed. Yeah. And overnight, within two weeks, LinkedIn used the old Facebook layout. The river of news that you're so familiar with now because it's been only like a couple of years, but we're all on LinkedIn all the time. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn kind of took the old Facebook interface as soon as the old one was discarded. And it became popular for people disenfranchised from Facebook. Like LinkedIn became the new Facebook for professionals. I was going to say that. People, the posts aren't always professionally driven. Yeah. There's a lot more emotions being put into the, the post. And... I think that puts employers and managers in a tough spot sometimes. Because everyone is a representative of their employer on that platform or elsewhere. And yet they're trying, it's a social network. So you want to kind of like express yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, so it's very interesting because employees might be speaking um, in a non-representative way. But more importantly to me is that companies are missing cues on those posts for celebrating employees and encouraging them, mm. you know? There's a lot of talent that's being restricted um, by not being facilitated as as kind of um, brand mouthpieces. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity as well through LinkedIn in this way. But coming back to the story of like, you know, the rapid cycling churn attrition amongst uh, teams and part of it is, yes, like workers looking for things that they can't have at their company, whatever that is, right? So mobility is one of the top desirables. During the pandemic, a lot of young folks who were not, you know, with child and mortgage said, I want to go to Tulum. Like, I want to, you know, I want to live by Cancun. I want to, like, get a Beetle, a Volkswagen, and, like, you know, live my mom's 1970s dreams. I don't know. In her jeans. What's up with the mom jeans, people? <laughs> I, Let's end that. I'm not a fan. Let's oh. end that. <laughs> Anyone grew up in the 80s knows it was never cool. <laughs> tight in some places and then loose. And then that, that's what jeans are. They just change where it gets tight. Yeah. Right? It just flows. Every season, different styles. On the mobility and, and Tulum, um, I think it was The Economist um, that had a, they did a, piece on economic refugees from the U.S. to Mexico, um, 
maybe you've read something along nope. that line. Nope. So it's talk talking about during this work remote, a lot of Americans, particularly from those very expensive states, you know, San, uh, California and places like that, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. they wanted they had very good salaries, but barely able to survive. You know, then you go to somewhere like Mexico because you live like a king. Yeah. However, what ends up happening is they now dominate, they're the big spenders right. in Mexico City, so for example. they're causing inflation. Yeah, and then over time, they're squeezing out local culture um, uh, establishments. Mm -hmm. So restaurants and things like that start getting kicked out and they're getting replaced by coffee shops. I'll say this even about specifically about Tulum, man. I went to Tulum for the first time in 1999. Mm. And that's when Tulum was Tulum. Like, for me, it felt like... Uh, it kind of felt like Lamu or it felt like uh, Zanzibar a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a there was a local kind of culture. There was definitely like a legacy culture of hippies um, and some yoga places. But for the most part, it was about pristine beach, quiet, and you go there to be by yourself on the beach. And just, it was not like a hotel experience in that... Um, it was not, how do I express this properly? It was that kind of like desert island beach holiday as opposed to the uh, all-you-can-eat buffet beach holiday. And uh, in a country that, you know, has promoted tourism as mass mass tourism tourism, um, where this all-inclusive hotel experience has been so predominant, especially up the coast to Cancun, Tulum was the counterbalance. What's really funny is that there's this cultural inflection now where like the boho chic, you know, aesthetic uh, is being flipped on its head as a marketing tool by local developers, um, you know, and hoteliers. And and it's kind of like the people who are discovering Tulum now feel like they've discovered something that, you know, is new. And it's 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 not at all. And it, it's definitely not what it was, you know, 20 years ago. No. So it's kind of funny. But anyway, the point is people that belong to working teams uh, who want to use their job to buy some sort of lifestyle freedom, mm -hmm. you know, all the kudos to them for sure for trying to find a better place to live and still be able to like, you know, commit um, dedication to their jobs and all the kudos to the, uh, the, the employers trying to like manage this distribution, but it's tough. Like, how, how, like, Mexico is an interesting one for us because it's within time zone approximately. Yeah. But if I wanted to move to, well, not me, I work for myself, but if someone wants to move to Prague and their local team is here, that's a tough one. Uh, I've heard many examples like this. Yeah, especially if you have a role where the hours matter, you know, slightly operational in tech, like you need to be on those calls for product calls and things like that. It's a huge problem. And those roles are sometimes the most important because the moment you start getting churn in tech, you know, in your uh, tech teams who own products, yeah, one person leaves, all that workload goes to the next, and then all of a sudden, four engineers turn into one. Right. And then what do you do? Do you pay that one engineer the salary of four? Or do you try back hire as quickly as possible and then culture fit, everything comes in, right? It's a bit of a slippery slope. I, I think that what you're saying is getting on the ball quicker. That first person, you know, that goes out the door needs a lot of critical reflection. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, I think engineer jobs and things like that also happen to be some of the highest paying jobs in a in a in, in a organization. And so it's seen almost like a lifting of a burden at first, like oh, it's one less salary to be paid.、Mm. But what that ends up doing in your quarterly planning or your biannual planning, it 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 snowballs into huge problems later on. And it I don't have a very good answer for it, other than from my experience. I think it actually pays to 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 still have some rigid rules. You know, th- this problem、right. of like, do, do we want to let people go to Prague? I'm I'm I would say to myself, no. I wouldn't necessarily want to work with someone that's halfway across the world. A lot of people will come out and they they write very good speeches about, but it's about the flexibility. You know, it's about making it work if they're really. But I'm there is a part of that which is well, once they're in Prague, right. right Other opportunities will present themselves. Their lives are going to be, you know, evolving.、Um, so、you might lose them in、yeah. the end, and this、yeah. is hard to say because one day maybe I want to do the same thing. But I should be understanding if my team or my company says no. no. I think it comes down to culture. You know, like a lot of organizations aren't reassessing what the cultural values they hold are, in terms of either enabling distributed work by understanding what. The fallbacks are for those workers. Like, what are the absolute essentials in terms of like participatory culture and adherence also to expectations that are you know functional and otherwise, like communication between team members and stuff and developing relationships. If they can't create a software-led you know plan to facilitate this stuff, they don't necessarily have to. Like, there are a lot of companies that require local culture. For their success,、uh, and for teams to be together, physically, like look at my business, right? So it's really interesting because we support tech companies and a lot of innovation-based companies, a lot of Fortune 50 companies too. Like all sorts of companies come through our doors to use Startwell, you know, as essentially an offsite or a meeting destination,、uh, aside from our media production stuff. And there's two things to that. One is we all need to be here to support these people. Like my employees at Startwell, my team、uh, are tied to a physical property. We're not going it. We can't.、Mm. We can't do our job in Mexico, you know. And、uh, and yet the teams that we support, we have suitcases all over the place. People are flying in from all over the place. And what's really interesting about that is, on one hand, you could say. You know, my team looks at those people and says, "Oh, I wish I had that life." But then, at the other side, they're all coming here. Yep, yep. All of these teams are reporting back from the field to us, saying, "We wish this place existed wherever we live, or otherwise, if we had known about this place, you know, this should be our everyday experience." We, I've seen it in my company and other companies. Everybody wants remote work, and then six months into it, I want a WeWork membership. I want a, I want a co-working space membership. Yeah. And now it's just to go and socialize with people outside of your company. And and that is like such a huge thing. So we're seeing with all the offsites that we're facilitating, whether it's for small teams or large teams, that like using the coming together when it needs to happen for literally. The base expectation of re-socializing people to know each other, to be comfortable with each other, to be familiar with each other—that's like the number one thing that、mm. organizations need to rely on evolving their culture. Because、mm. if the people don't know each other, it's very difficult to 
uh, not just know what your culture is, but to rely on it. Mm. People need to be able to figure out uh, how they relate to each other. And again, if everyone's behind a screen, it's not necessarily going to happen. You know, yeah. so so we see that every day and we hear it in the laughter and like that the vibe that people have when they come to start well is, is so um it's infectious and it's positive and it's good vibes, yeah. So how do you how do you look at your competitive landscape? Like how do you break out your competitors and by brands? Oh what well. are the things that you say bucket them into other ones? Price I don't well like as? to think competitively, but what I would say is that in 2017 when Startwell was founded, you know, I we were specifically a co-working space for early stage ventures, particularly tech companies. Then things changed. Uh, a couple of years in, you know, we kind of actually since day one, I've always held uh, something that set me outside of of competing, which seemed to be stupidity, is what I was called by you know competitors that I know in the space. So other co-working operators really we're looking at unit economics yep. as their business model. Mm-hmm. We need to get the tiniest glass cubicle offices to fill the most people in, um, to make the most money with the least amount of common space per square foot to maximize, you know, that turn of profit on, on a real estate asset. That's basically what, you know, that's the we work thing, right? Um, common space, if anything, is show value uh, programming. So make the space next to the elevators where you can't put an office kind of feel like it's your living room, but then, Hey, wait, you're sitting there and people are walking behind you and your back is kind of your neck hairs are out tingling, you know, cause it's yeah, not it's a, comfortable. That's a good point. Yep. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I'll, I'll throw stones that we work for, uh, and they're, they're design, um, uh, folks, uh, for productizing what I call a holiday and express experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's certainly not a St. Regis, certainly no. not a Four Seasons, uh, and it's not even a, a W, you know. So it, it, it thinks it's a W, or at least that was the Adam Newman perception, was that, like, WeWork is a W hotel, mm-hmm. you know. It's, uh, it's a little, like, low-key maybe on the staff on the floor, but, like, everyone gets a hamburger when they want one, but the hamburger feels like it's something new. And there's like fluorescent color everywhere and motivational, you know, speeches everywhere. So like people aren't alone because they're reminded that like Gandhi, you know, lived some bullshit like that. But yeah. we were because the W is probably one of the least raucous statements he made about. Yeah. The but like, I think the thing is that like, you know, the, the, seeing the workplace facilitated by WeWork as something fun and new and refreshing was kind of like the shtick uh, for WeWork in the early years. And um Anyway, the business model, despite that, was very much that you put people as densely as possible in, in glass cubicles, you know, charge the premium price, uh, maybe give them a bit of lease flexibility. But the convention at the time, right, was a 10-year lease versus maybe a two-year lease. Mm. So the eight-year delta is a lot of value, right? Yeah. Um, however, what we always found was competitively, I was like, fuck that. I don't want anyone to feel like a sardine in their office. And I want offices to feel like bedrooms in a hotel. You come down from your office. So even our layout at Starwell, the upper floors are offices. And then the lower floors are um, meeting spaces, lounges, 
And then even at our reception, we don't have self-service kitchens. There's a couple kitchenettes here and there for people like reheat their lunch. But you walk in a Startwell and there's a barista who's, you know, on a wicked old school restored Gaja, you know, espresso machine that you saw. And they're offering you a cappuccino. And then we also have tech. Like we've got like a robot that brews loose leaf teas on demand, which is kind of cool, called mm -hmm. a tea bot. So we mix that self-service and full service. Um, low staff footprint, but it's, I hate saying it this way. In, in commercial real estate, people will say, you know, it's, it's a hospitality focused offering. Um, but yeah, so in the early days, that hospitality set us apart. And I had probably about 50% of my square footage being common and shared space as opposed to what is typically about 15% maybe, mm -hmm. you know, 15, 18% mm -hmm. in conventional co-working. And I'll say that that's not even co-working. Companies like WeWork, IWG, Regis, et cetera, you know, Regis's affiliate brands under IWG, including Spaces. Yeah, yeah. Those are essentially shared office companies. Mm -hmm. That's the way I look at it, you know. Um, they're co-mingled offices. They're not co-working in terms of the ethos of co-working um, not being there which is more of an indie vibe in the early days, uh, kind of like around this, the time we work got started. But like co-working from, from when I discovered it at the Center for Social Innovation in like 2006, you know, uh, the first spaces in Canada at the time you know, were emerging. And the culture was very much about what is the experience of people relying on each other, working together from different organizations. Like... Literally, what is that culture when you've got 50 companies represented in the same space by kind of like a, diff a team that might be like one or two or five people from each company? But they're all sharing the same space, eating lunch together on certain days, you know, having parties together. So the ethos in, of co-working in the early days was very much about like people together from different backgrounds, which is really cool. Um, but then in the commercialization uh, you know, of co-working, what happened was there was an over-focus on the business model, which relies on um, term commitments, cash deposits, you know, corporate clients. So the space and the design of that space to be colorful and animated was to kind of make the employees of these corporate companies feel like they're in a different place and they're enjoying life more. That's the way I look at it. Mm. And you see it with brands like Spaces by IWG. Spaces was supposed to be their fun brand to counterbalance their boring 1980s pocket square bullshit of Regis, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and the design follows suit, and everyone's got the same aesthetic language, uh, you know, from a corporate offering of co-working where they're all copying each other, and it's like designs that don't, they're not context-sensitive. Do you think it's old design, though, or...? There are certain brands where they they toot their community managers, so instilling relationships through humans. I get it, but at the same time, I haven't seen a brand that um, particularly like like let's call it a twenty site plus brand in co working um, that in especially the Western Hemisphere, you know, in North America particularly that enables those community managers to actually understand human dynamics and participate amongst those people in a non-bellhoppy way. For the most part, com 
excuse me, community managers in these like corporatized co-working spaces are glorified bellhops. Mm. That's mm. the way I look at it. Like mm. they're they're going to help you with the printer when you have problems with the printer. Um, and then they'll be like hanging out with you and maybe yeah. go for a drink with you once in a while, right? They'll be your buddy. But how do they have relevance in your company's functioning? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, are they uh, offering opportunity for your company to grow, find partnerships, find, you know, staff if you're hiring? Uh, no. Are they, you know, responsible for even doing the extra mile and being a concierge and getting you an Uber when you need it? Typically not. No. What happens is it's very difficult to have that role not fuck shit up. So the responsibility profile goes way down. Yeah. Those people are there to kind of like hang out. In the WeWork model, traditionally, it was like they're people that are just hanging out, right? Yeah. And they're animating. If anything, I mean, they're animating the space, which means, yay, you know, like it's going to be donut hour in an hour. So. Bagel Thursdays. I'll go tell everyone, yeah, come get your bagels. Yay, we're going to have bagels together, guys. So there's maybe a time and a place for that in certain cultures. But what we've always found is that, like, I want my customer base to be entirely created of people who know what they do every day. I don't want entrepreneurs. I don't want people trying to figure out their life through their work. Okay. And that's a huge cultural difference. Mm. Um, that from day one, we've always found with these kind of like shared office places. Um, it's in fact, it's a flip, you know, mm. where people come to start well, not to try and find validation. Okay. They are pre-validated. They've got their whole next five years of their work cut out for them. So in sharing space at Startwell, they are really here to enjoy being able to focus, being able to collaborate, being able to do their work. That's really like the meta. Mm. It's not a sideline. I'm, this is not a, you know, a carnival mm. where people come to like forget that they're employees. Mm. which I think got baked into the aesthetics under Adam Newman that we work, you know? And subsequently with the, the the kind of, you know, I could do a kind of interior design critique episode where I'm like looking at different photographs of all these different operators and say, this is why that's stupid and this is stupid. A lot of it is not, I guess a lot of it is not context sensitive. Like I've seen this where, you know, they're trying to just like on the data center example, um, large footprint multi-locational brands are trying to roll out this franchise approach that doesn't enable uh, teams in particular locations to enjoy a space that was built for them. Mm. It was designed, you know, in Tallahassee for them. And so there's a disparity between expectations of experience uh, and the actual experience. Yeah, and the balancing the budget anyways at some point, like on what they can actually install. A lot, but a lot of money gets spent for these top-down, you know, design initiatives and centralized stuff. Like this coming full circle to, to hospitality, the same things in hotels, right? Like if you look at um, major logo kind of, major logo efforts at creating ubiquitous brand experience, versus boutique hotels that are multi-locational, that are very site-specific. Um, they're, they're like night and day. They're different things. Yeah. 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 Um, for a long time in the hospitality industry, people, the lifestyle, lifestyle was that word, right? 
and then W was seen as the leader, and now, you know, now it's just more extreme versions that I like really. But even then, roll it back a few years. Why is W considered to be a leader? Where's Ian Schrager these days? <laughs> like seriously, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like Ian Schrager was the boss because he was fucking shit up, and it was about the quality of experience in an Ian Schrager hotel when you walk in the door is one of, you know, mirth, excitement, curiosity. Um, and every stay is an opportunity to discover. But you have that cycle as well, like that, and then everybody tries to copy it, and then someone democratizes it. Like, by oh, let's democratize make... it, you mean franchises it? No, by making it cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, okay, let's, same thing. Now we just go to a four-star version of it. Oh, this public uh, co-working space... It's got that. Okay, now let's make a more democratized, like, again, cheaper version of it so it's more accessible. The funny thing is, though, I mean, like, and this is the Ian Schrager example is really interesting because, you know, he's all about affordable luxury, right? And I think his public hotels brand was the last kind of brand that was was active or the most recent thing. But the idea of affordable luxury is such that it should be affordable, you know? Like, luxury, unless you're talking about jewelry and then you don't want it to fall apart. But the, the my take on things is that for quality hospitality experiences, you don't need to pay a lot. And the vendor doesn't need to spend a lot to provide exceptional service. It's actually a corrosion of the model um, such that, you know, operators feel like, you know, a better, in, like, as a chef, I want the best quality meat, you know, if I'm going to cook you a steak for sure. But I need how to know how to cook that steak. Yeah. And I could give you a smaller portion of a fantastically like hand massage grass fed steak that you're going to love because of the other things on the plate as well. I don't need to give you like a, you know, an 800 gram steak for $200. I could give you the, the same quality of meat with sides and everything else, right? In a way that doesn't break my bank on the supply side, that gives you tons of value. In fact, more value than eating more of that ingredient. Mm. So the way I look at it is like affordable luxury is a powerful thing so long as the operator understands what the concept is. Yeah, but in the hospitality industry, pricing is dynamic. So when we say affordable, like what is that point? Like is that revenue management department really going to set an upper bound? What it, what it comes down to is that, you know what, and we were talking about scale startups and stuff. I think... I think profit margin is an interesting thing to consider because most public companies are entirely focused on profit maximization. Now, if instead you had a mandate to ensure minimum profit margin and locked in at that, so you're not an infinite scale company. You're not saying um, in a great market, we can make five times what we're making now. No. You say, I don't give a fuck if it's a great market. I only want to make one time what I'm making now. So if I want to make more money, I got to grow. I got to have more locations. We got to offer different products to the same customer, maybe. Increase the value of the customer to us in different ways. Yeah. But why should I try and make more and more and more and more and more and more, and more money? Because the product has to suffer eventually. It's not sustainable. Yeah. I guess... When you're modeling that out, though, the risk factor is really high and just subjective to whoever's running it, right? Yeah, except this bullshit. When when any organization says that we're going to mitigate kind of um, the risk of non-constant, let's call it input costs, 
by charging as much as we can when we can, they don't have any conception of what cash flow means. Because you're not holding that like extra winnings in your pocket for a bad market. No, you're deploying it usually so that you can go and, you know. Ultimately, it's, you're it's, just levering it. It's always about leverage. So you make them more money, you can borrow more yeah. or whatever it is that you need to do. So it's kind of risky. And, and the way I look at it is this is maybe a kind of like the uh, owner-operator versus the infinite scale, you know, public company perspective. Mm. But I really do value um, an interplay between uh, affordable luxury and controlled profit expectations. Part of that, of course, is knowing your costs and trying to keep them you know, constant is tough in an inflationary kind of context and like everyone in Europe, salt, you know, dealing with this with energy as well right now. Uh, so there's things that are out of your hand, but ultimately you'd want to provide a high level of standard at a constantly great price to somebody to make it, what did you call it? Democratization to truly democratize, you know, what you're offering. Yeah. I mean, some, some companies say that, you know, yeah. <laughs> whether it's true or not. Like I said, dynamic pricing tends to throw that out the window. The moment, you know, people see a crunch time on, oh, no more availability in the market. You look at hotel rates and how they fluctuate. It's crazy. You know, you. I, I look at the Toronto market on like uh, hotel prices. People said that, you know, we had a really tough season uh, through COVID. But I look at some of the hotels and the prices they're charging and I'm really wondering to myself who's paying that in some cases to stay. It's crazy. I mean, definitely we have an undersupply of beds in this city and then so that's a natural kind of inflationary pressure um but yeah the way that people price things for hotels is really weird it's very weird but you know my point here is it's surprising to me that yeah you we that know the reason pay. why I go, but why would you pay no but it's and it's, it's crazy oh, i mean like but yeah i know and that's a dead end kind of logic in in a constrained market where demand just way outstrips supply because you see it even in the non-traditional market. You look, look at Airbnbs in this city. They're terrible, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Across the board, like the product is horrible. Mm. Most of them are in condo buildings where it's illegal to even have those Airbnbs. And there's literally signs. I once booked my parents before they moved back to Canada recently. I booked them in an Airbnb. It looked legitimate from the listing. The reviews were exceptionally great. Um, again, who's reviewing this thing? I don't know. They're people from podunk towns that are like, you know, in the big city, maybe they're not looking at the same things I'm looking at. But what I find is, or what I found was my parents called me as soon as they checked in and they were like, what is going on? We got the key from a lockbox outside of the building that's in a place with all these other lockboxes and there's a big sign that says not for Airbnb usage and then we went in the building and above the concierge or like security guard next to the elevators there was a sign that said you will be prosecuted if you are staying in an Airbnb and then we came up to the place and the place looks fairly clean but it doesn't look like they've cleaned the towels properly huh? and also we're afraid we're going to get arrested sitting here like they're not going to sleep comfortably in this place mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and then I, I wrote to the 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 chap whose place it was supposedly it turns out he's not he's a broker uh, doing a side hustle helping his friend uh, make money on a property he couldn't sell mm -hmm. and that's what this was and uh, he was not receptive to feedback and I was like look dude this is illegal what you're doing it's literally illegal if I had known I would have paid because I paid I think I was paying like $600 a night or something like <sighs> yeah 
It's like, I'll put them in a really nice hotel yeah. room. Yeah. Why am I suffering this way? Mm-hmm. You know, like, do you understand that you're you're overselling me something crap? Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'll knock off 50% off the last night. They were staying there for like four nights. So the the experience was horrible. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not just that experience that I say the stock is poor. Like when I look at Airbnb versus hotels in Toronto, downtown Toronto, there's no way I would choose an Airbnb because very few are exceptional properties. Mm. Um, and and I when I stay in a ho- anywhere that's not my house, uh, I mean, I'm rare, but I hold that place to the standard of my house. Yeah. I live well, mm. you know. I always have. Like, even if it was a crappy little apartment, it was awesome. Mm. And uh, and I don't know that if the mass population who checks in at Airbnbs does, in North America, right? This is not like a castle in France. I don't think people really understand that. And also, those might be people that, talking about democratization, where markets are cheaper, people staying in other people's apartments might not otherwise spring for a hotel. No. Maybe it's cheaper in some places. But yeah, then you have these weird things like in Toronto where doesn't make any sense we need more hotel rooms construction costs are difficult people would rather put up condo buildings because they'll make their winnings that too. as you know the developer profile is mm-hmm. very difficult for hotels in in toronto yeah but we are seeing uh, a number of properties being redeveloped into mixed use because of low office utilization yeah yeah, and when i was doing feasibility in the middle east that's when service departments was really the boom and what it would do to your, you know, <laughs> the cash flow we're <laughs> calculating it. Everybody just wanted to put a couple in there. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everything's black. It's like, oh, nice. It worked out. And now all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we have all these service departments. They're all luxury. Let's, dem- <laughs> let's go put some, you know, lower brands in there. And yeah, it's it, service departments. This idea of home away from home is very romantic. You know, as it sounds like you're kind of going back to people who are working for a company if they travel for a company. Now with remote work, you might go to a, a city and before it was all about work potentially. Right. And it would be the the, the local city teams that took you out. It would be your yeah. business partners that take you out. Yeah. But now with Airbnb experience, now with service apartments, with vacation rentals as uh, and, and a globalized world where you can have people you studied with in any city in the world. You are maybe less attached to your company just because why well, want I go see my colleague when I can see my friend? And, you know, it's funny just how all this comes together to just so many headwinds right. for companies trying to get this integration. Like, oh, travel with the company, we're going to pay for you, et cetera. But you're going there and living your own life. Mm-hmm. You're extending through the weekends so you can live your own life. And work is just seen as a enabler to whatever lifestyle you want. Or remote work is so that you can be at home it's kind of weird you say it that way because I've I've definitely seen it a lot recently where I'm looking at um, a new employee class of kind of people seeing work as um, a source of revenue. Yeah. They're not seeing, they're not career track minded. No. Like people today, um, depending on what industry you're in, let's, I'll talk about my lens on startups. Like people in startups who are not necessarily engineers who are like, you know, want to be at the terminals all the time and just like create, solve problems. People on the front end of the side of the business in startups, a lot of them um, literally are just like saying this This paycheck is like me having a gig and my custom, my client is paying me. So that changes the dynamics on how they relate to their employer. You can't boss me around. You can't push me around. You know, that kind of mentality. This like, I'll fire you 
And that's what quitting and going to another job is, uh, is, is simply that. And of course, you know, it's a hot topic on this series is people talking about how do you manage that as an employer? You want to engage your peeps, but at the same time, you want them to be loyal because otherwise you've put so much effort into entrusting them with the work. And I think this is a real interesting thing is that a lot of people today, new, let's call it new employees, uh, aren't necessarily appreciative of the role being created for them. And it goes back to this corruption of maybe like the corporate politic in North America. But so many employees assume that the ability for the company to pay their salary is unquestionable. Yes. And anyone in startups will kind of tell you, right, no matter where you get your money, if it's VC or otherwise, that like you've got 10 million uses for each dollar. So if someone is not thankful for the position to, that they hold, it's very difficult to feel um, beholden to them in any way. But the staff demand is like, you owe me something because you hired me. It's a really weird corrupted thing. Not for everybody, but it, mm-hmm. it, it, it does seem to happen. And imagine you've heard a lot of this firsthand from the founders of those startups. 100%. And right? we've seen it through our through our tenancy as well. We've seen companies grow from zero to, you know, hundreds of plus of people um, over the last five years. And uh, and it's something that's come up over and over and over again. I, I'm curious, maybe a little bit off topic, but with the cross-pollinization that you have in your space between mm-hmm. these companies, has it ever, you ever had exa- uh, like examples? Like has someone where... poached someone else's staff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. That must be a real catch-22 on, oh, well, maybe Shannon put you there. <laughs> it's weird because I think the early-stage founders are not looking at that as a problem as much as, like, conventional, you know, corporate politic does. Like, if someone... It's kind of weird. I'll, I'll say it like this. A lot of early-stage founders, um, maybe first-time entrepreneurs particularly, are not as cautious as they should be, they're not as cognizant of the value of human resources as an input into the business. It's really weird. And part of it is if you're in a fundraise cycle, your fundraise is more important than anything, you know? So if leadership is constantly focused on the biggest problem, it's the biggest problem now, which is not the biggest problem over time, which Mm. fundamentally is your people. Your people sustain the business's operation. But if you're even like ahead of that, you're not even really in operation because you've been bankrolled to set up shop, you won't appreciate what it means to be able to rely on your people. Yeah, yeah. We made a joke about it before we started this episode of referring to North America using the phrase North America because it sounds like I'm about to say something really judgmental, but I I mean that, I I mean it now in, in, in a very... I'm trying to be objective and, and, and you know ask myself if this is the case of perhaps in North America there is this point of there's this focus on the grind. Yeah. Working hard, you know, gotta gotta put in the hours and that's that that's what determines success in some ways. And I've seen some founders kind of, you know, leaders come out and talk about that. But um I think in startups it's particularly like that. You have these CEOs and people like that come out and say, it's going to be tough and we're going to get through it. But what it really means is we're about to go and put in some crazy hours in here. And it might be true, but yeah, ultimately, 
how do they get around that and realize? Well, look, we've 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 seen something weird in North America. This is the way I look at it. In the last couple of decades, uh, there's two major trends that I see is a little fucked up. One is a new classism, and the other thing is, which might be contextual for this, is secularization. So secularization in the last, let's call it since the 50s, in North America um, has meant that, you know, the temples are not sacred and that everyone is their own god. And fundamentally, you know, we've had this obscuration of signal sourcing because of it. And you see that online where, you know, iconography of success uh, and the assumed divinity of cultural icons and celebrity culture mm-hmm. is obscuring people's subconscious value for, uh, let's call it the ever, you know, looking eye, you know, the uh, watchful gaze of, of the divine. This is the way I look at things. And secularization is scary as it progresses because what it does is people entrust systems um, and and kind of totems uh, with signals for their own life, you know. And perhaps this has, you know, fueled the appetite in the last couple of generations or generation for uh, the post-baby boomer generation mm-hmm. in North America for money as a measure of success. Because you're not going to feel that you know conventional fulfillment that you might have had in a in a more religious society i'm not saying that as people turn away from the concept of god or have questions they can't answer and because of that don't go to their church of uh, a familial heritage uh that they are lost in any way i'm just saying that you know whether you choose to be religious or not as the mass population is less religious with every generation the experience of religiosity which is, if nothing else, you know, submission to a divine um, existence, mm-hmm. means that humans have less or fewer tools at their disposal um, to negotiate existential angst, the human condition. Mm. So in the last couple of decades in North America, what I've seen is that sets the tone for this kind of like uh, value for lucre, value for uh, money above all else, the greed that we see, the ignorance about the fluidity and virtualization of public markets, right? Uh, it's a, it's basically like uh, using a, uh, what do you call it? I don't know. Everyone wants to entrust uh, opportunity uh, with this divinity. Like I, I see a lot of bets being made that are hopeful bets, across all segments of the economy, right? Mm. Um, And so this is an interesting thing for me where I see this kind of like money above all else thing and then a a general celebritized, you know, identity of riches where like, I don't know, like let's talk about some bullshit that's recent, okay? Kanye West. Mm -hmm. So Kanye West is an interesting guy, right? For many reasons. A lot of people... um, Historically, whether you agree that he's, his, his music was great or not, or whether he had one song, or whether he had an album, or whether he had a career in music. Um, there Is that up for debate? 
<laughs> well, like, like the thing is, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm gonna hate on Kanye. No, I always have though. I always have. I've always been like, yeah, cool. That guy can. He, he has some songs, right? Like, cool. He makes music. That's great. Whatever. Um, but I remember when that song came out, and I was living in New York, you know, and it was kind of like part of the palette. If you're in the scene, uh, in New York, you know, if you're part of any music scene. That was a song, you know, Jesus Walks type, all that shit. It was a song, and it was a cool song, but it was it was like anthemic song. Mm. Um, and it was part of the palette. It wasn't everything. And I think what happens with these celebrity icons as music, musicians or otherwise is they become everything to the people who are their fans, right? And that hope and... Uh, you know, f- want to understand um, the celebrity in a way that's packaged so that they can relate to that person is b- has become endemic in the society where someone like Kanye West, like there's, there's literally this kind of weird like guilt and uh, what do you call it? It's, it's um, people feel very much let down by the man ranting and raving about stupid, you know, anti-Semitic bullshit. And it becomes this hot topic in society, Right. And in all the reported media, there's some sort of like all these catches of money. Like everything is told about money. So, okay, so this guy goes loco, right, and starts like spitting stupidity. uh, And uh, it's cost him $400 million. Adidas is burning money every day that they're talking to Kanye West. (sighs) You know, because no one wants to call out the real issue. And fans are feeling like they're you know, icon has let them down. And a lot of the defense you see in public public um, media for him is, well, he knows what he's doing. It's this whole Donald Trump defense. Oh, he's so rich. He must know what he is doing. Oh. He's got, he did something right. Jesus loves him. You know, like people will say shit like that. Yeah. 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 And yeah. you hear it all the time. And yeah. so I see it from the lens of technology because that's very much my world. And I see, you know, all of these iconic folks, people that have become, uh, celebritized to nouveau Jesus status, like uh, Steve Jobs. You know, the, again, a hot topic person is Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so Elon Musk. Uh, there's there's just so much uh, public opinion about that guy who tweets similarly to Donald Trump. It's just like, what is Twitter anymore? I I don't know, man. I was one of the first people on Twitter. I don't use it anymore because it's like. I have never felt that you can engage anyone in conversation on Twitter. Yeah. You know? Um, But that's part of that whole, like, you know, psychological kind of, let me put something there and see how it reacts as opposed to engage people. I I know a startup that started out in one of the uh, WeWorks I was working out of who, um, they they were just a content website and, and they did a lot of, they did a variety in the beginning when I first noticed them and it was motivational speeches, but then self-help and then some spirituality content, et cetera. And as time went on and they got funding, more funding and things like that. First of all, I looked at that and went, how are you getting funding? Like, yeah. what is the problem you're solving other than entertainment? Kind of, you know, like I thought a content, you know, provider yeah. or a production company would acquire you. Like, no, it was bought as a business. I was like, okay. As time progressed, all of it became motivational. All of it was motivational. Videos, speeches, get it, make it, do right, it. Right. Da, da, da. And Hustle it was culture shit. All celebrities. Yeah. And I, and that was my first year in, in Canada. 
And I looked at what is this? And yeah, it was kind of foreign to me. And I know that it obviously exists in Europe and and, in the Middle East and and, and, you know Africa where I've lived before. But I I just felt like it wasn't the same. I I didn't get the same, you know, like electrifying feeling. And I I mean that in a bad way. Like oh my god, like the guy's an actor. Uh, you know, this person's a singer. Like yeah. they're very skilled, very talented. But you're making this video like they're gonna solve your family problems or your career aspirations. And it's like, go get what you want. Always be grinding. You working at night. You know, etc. And yeah, I kind of get it when they use maybe Manny, pa- uh, not Manny Pacquiao, but like Floyd Mayweather running at 3 a.m. after he went to the club. Sure. Like, I kind of get that a little bit more, you know, and maybe that's just a bias because I think, you know, sports, like uh, he's a sportsman and stuff. But yeah, this, what you're talking about, secularization of, of it, it, it definitely, in my opinion, bleeds over. I really agree with you because you talk to your colleagues and there it is, you know, oh, I'm going to finish my nine to five and then I'm going to go and do this. And now, that. what's crazy is the evolution of this as marketing and as a recruitment tool. Like, again, I'm just saying some things I've seen. I'm not going to question whether it's good or bad, but you see a lot of companies celebrating, tech companies particularly, but celebrating the ability to have a side hustle for employees as a recruitment tool. But at the same time, why is that a side hustle as opposed to part of your hustle? I was going to say that because I don't think it's bad to have a side hustle, but to call it that, dude, packaging I, of like it. I'm going to say, look, I work hard for my company. I'm the I'm I'm an employee just like everyone else here, CEO, owner, or otherwise. When I go home, I want to spend time with my daughter, and after I eat, I have one hour before I go to sleep before I wake up again at 6.30 in the morning. I don't have time for a side hustle. Mm. I'm dedicated to this job, which means during the day, it's not even I work long hours. It's like 9 till 6, maybe 7. I don't have time during my day to do a side hustle because I'm doing my thing. Mm. So if you really break it down, no one has bloody time for a side hustle. They don't, unless they're wearing their sleep down they're wearing their weekends down, which might be respite if you know from your job. If it's uh, whatever takes from you during the the week, to, if you need the weekend to rest after a week of work because you're dedicated, you don't want to spend it trying to hustle some money. Mm. If you have a passion for something, maybe you don't want to be full time. You want to be part time with your job. But I think that's it, right? A lot of people are. Part time with their jobs. But, but at least they've maybe clocked out. They suspect they could be passionate and. Yeah. No, I mean, like, look, we're going through a cultural evolution in North America right now where I think distributed work is kind of, which is cool, enabling people to start questioning because their days are less busy or they're busy in different ways. They're not commuting as much. They're not waste seeing their days as, as a lot of wasted time. So it's good for people to question these things, but I think ultimately you see, or I'm seeing a lot of people going the route of saying I will earn my job because it kind of subsidizes my lifestyle and my side hustle is going to push me into the thing that really ultimately I want to be doing mm-hmm. and you're using your job to finance escaping from your job mm-hmm. as someone who has been an entrepreneur since I was le- okay the first business I've never said on camera but yeah like 14 let's call it right 
when I was like an internet reseller in the first ever in, in East Africa, and I was carrying around a bag of modems after school mm-hmm. to install and teach people what the internet was uh, in 94, 95. Like, since then, I'll say that like, yeah, I've been an entrepreneur forever. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, truly, and you have a passion to do something as a business, you can't have a side hustle. The side hustle should be the hustle. So I find it very weird that like companies would embrace subsidizing someone's, you know, departure from their employment by promoting this as a benefit. I would instead, as that company say, it's not a side hustle. I'm going to be an incubator. Mm. Right. So we'll give you one or two days a week Mm -hmm. off your salary, like on salary, I mean, paid for to create something amazing we're going to invest in you as a person but we'll calculate it out you're part of our incubator program and we take five percent equity and we'll connect you with financing if you need it or whatever resources that the company can assist with turn it around i don't understand why i'm not seeing more companies create these mechanisms for incubating innovation by leveraging their talent pool to create that value Instead, they're at odds with it and caught in this like, we don't want them to quit, but they're doing some other shit. <laughs> and like, they're just like tremoring, you know? And like, it's, 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 there's ways around it, I think. Yeah. To deal with the necessity of, yeah, recognizing that that's, that's reality, right? Yeah. I, I think that you're right. I think maybe once we get into the weeds of it, you would need a very avant-garde approach of, you want to do this now whose responsibility is it is it the director that's already your director now that now has to do (laughs) he now has an additional job in addition to his job description to be the side house side hustler incubator of the company (laughs) Uh, well yeah i mean fundamentally this is this is something that unfortunately the day's been keeps getting pushed back because of personal uh things and falling sick and stuff but i have a guest for this series that uh, should be coming on in the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't know if you know him, Marcus Daniels from Highline Beta. No, I don't. I think he'll have some interesting stuff to share with our audience on this topic because uh, Highline Beta has been working with corporate clients for a few years now, probably about six years, five years at least, um, to build out programming for this. Wow. So they actually, now it's not what I'm talking about. It's not what we're talking about per se, but things like, I think one of their clients was Anheuser-Busch that was like, you know, saying, we're a beer company, right? Um, supply chain concerns us. We need to de-risk it. We also need to de-risk um, kind of like our bets on particular grains and stuff like that uh, as being the only ones that our product can rely on. Mm-hmm. Let's create new products. Mm-hmm. How do we do that in a way that's not just um, within our classic wheelhouse of product development, and so they create these programs for companies like that. Um, and the company that the program that they created, as far as I recall, for Anheuser Busch was uh, a climate change incubator. They went real meta with it. They were like, you know what? Our people, our general team, is so adept at what they do that we're going to entrust them to continue doing a great job, but we're going to give them access to working on mega problems like water scarcity because it affects our business. Mm-hmm. Their business is so large that that makes sense. But anyway, Highline Beta sets up these programs for companies. 
Um, so I think there might be some lessons in that experience to say, you know, when you really drill it down to this employee, you know, um, attribution or I guess attrition, managing attrition by encouraging employee participation um, through innovation. That's also really, you know, two birds, one stone because it deals with these like these are really big overarching problems, right? That face like humanity and some people feel really fulfilled working on those problems yeah even if it's not their hustle yeah because like because otherwise they're disenfranchised from those problems their side hustle might be like a scapegoat yeah it's like you have a lot of employees questioning their company on what they're doing for diversity and inclusion sometimes not even within the company but speaking out against examples in the public right and puts certain companies in a really tough spot of like well do we raise our voice every single time this happens? Right. And put CEOs in very tough spots because you're kind of saying, hey, you didn't say something and our company is all behind you. But then, um, yeah, which problems do they speak out for? And against there's like, oh, I think there are teams that just focus on this. Like yeah. your PR team could spend all day just trying to find, you know, figure out which which problem to tackle. So that's a really interesting concept. I'll be, I'll keep an eye out for that one. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And there's so much more to discuss. Yeah, I think we put a pin in it now <laughs> so that our, our audience can do other things with their day. Um, but it was it was certainly awesome to have this chat. And uh, and I think we didn't at all scratch the surface on what Sonder is and you know, <laughs> what the, your company is doing. But um, but the perspective that you shared was was great on all these topics. Yeah. It's, uh, well, thank you very much for having me on. It was great to hear, you know, all the, the learnings that you've, you've shared. This is really this is really, really cool. I mean, what you got going on here and the topics that you discuss, it, it floats around, just like you said, it's conversational. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to tune in for other episodes. Excellent. And-